0: Hi, everyone. Uh, It's really good to be here with my old friend, Peter Adams. Not so much Um, of the old John. (laughs) Yes, I've known Pete since I was probably seven years old when my parents um, moved from New Zealand. And Pete Pete and Anne would have been two of the people we would have known way back then. And over the years... um, Peter has uh, really been very formational, I think, in my life. He's been inspirational. Um, he's, he does work that is just brilliant. There's just not many other people doing what he would do. And um, so it's really good to be in your home patch, Luton, Luton Town, um, and uh, in St. Mary's uh, Church of England church. Um, in front of this beautiful window. And so, Peter, do you want to just kind of introduce yourself, um, w- whatever titles you might have, and what you want to say about this church? And I, I primarily of- really
1: do, Johnny, um, <laughs> rather than have titles. But, yes, I do have a few titles <laughs> on the way. Um, I work based here at St. Mary's, yeah. which is the sort of town centre parish church in Luton. Uh, Luton's a town of about 215,000 people. A very multicultural town, one of Britain's most multicultural towns. And I work here based at the church. I'm not a minister. Um, I come from a background of working in peace building, reconciliation, as you know, community mm-hmm. peace building. Yeah. Bits of which I most significantly learned with you in Northern Ireland around mm-hmm. situations where you were. Um, but I'm now living and working here in the, in Luton, working with the church, helping the church engage with the issues of this very multicultural town, including a town where we've got... Quarter of our population are Muslim. Mm. And so based here at the church, but I always say I go out from the church. Mm. Um, but in that, I also have a number of roles as sort of a senior lay person in the Church of England in Luton. Mm-hmm. I actually am chair of the Church of England, um, laity for the for the diocese in Albans. Mm. Okay. Um, And I'm on the Church of England's General Synod, and I do, we started a number of years ago a Centre for Peace and Reconciliation, so where you are now is our emerging Peace Chapel.
0: Okay, okay. And tell us about that window then. Yeah,
1: um, that window's themed on the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, Mm. and the artist who is leading stained glass artists of the the mid-1900s, Alan Younger said that he was inspired by the emotions that Mary had as she learned that she would bear a son, as a virgin, an unmarried woman, she would bear a son, who was to be the saviour of the world. And those emotions expressed in her song, the Song of Mary, the Magnificat. Um, Stories of themes of justice and reconciliation, so much so that the the Magnificat became a radical piece of literature. I mean, in, the, in Central America, it was banned in a number of nations. It was banned in during the time of the fight for independence in India, because it's so much about bringing down the mighty and raising up the humble. So it was seen almost as a as an anthem of the of the disempowered.
0: Wow! Wow! And then uh, some people listening to this would have heard of a guy called Shane Claiborne, who's been quite instrumental in. Trying to get guns, uh, people handing in guns, which they then beat into literally into farming tools. Yeah, um, taking that biblical phrase, you will beat yeah. your swords into ploughshares. Yeah, and you've got a little kind of sculpture piece of art here that was came through. Shane got involved in that and uh, using decommissioned or yeah. Um, Shane
1: was here in England doing a tour last year uh-huh. with Red Letter Christians with Tony Campolo and and mm. we wanted to take that theme of swords into plowshares, radical peacemaking, mm. turning instruments of violence and war into, into something of peace. And so we worked with Bedfordshire Police, our local police force. Mm. We collected about 2,000 knives from their knife amnesty bins. Mm. And one of our members, Luke, who you met earlier, turned, turned with another member, turned created this... Uh, Knife Phoenix, mm. from about 200 knives, wow. including some serious weapons, swords and fighting yeah. knives and so on. Mm. A lot of domestic knives as well. And and it's a symbol of how something that's ugly and used for violence and used for killing can be turned into a an, into something of beauty. Mm. So we have yeah. Phoenix rising from the ashes of violence and destruction with new life as a, a very strong Christian metaphor for peace. But a, a metaphor for peace that... Everybody gets because, I mean, you know, those words turning swords into plowshares are right outside the United Nations building in New York, for example. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Luton, um,
0: a lot of people listening may not know too much about Luton. Um, I recommend a movie I saw on the airplane last week, uh, Blinded, Blinded by the Light, which is an unlikely story of a young Pakistani immigrant boy growing up in 1980s Luton and his his obsession with Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. <laughs> it's a brilliant. It's a brilliant capture of many things of immigration yeah. of England in the 1980s of uh, the challenge of, of being an immigrant. It's, tell us a bit about Luton um, Peter and um, you know you touched on a, a few things a bit of the size of a, a large Muslim population also yeah. it's known with a, a large
1: far right um, tendencies as well <coughs> lots of things to go there yeah mm. just before i forget it blinded by the light was that two of the scenes are actually filmed here in the church oh, well, well yeah. one in the church one outside the church so okay. the sort of romance scene is uh, just outside with okay. um that was filmed back in uh 20, 2018 okay yeah. and uh we love it yeah, yeah. so uh, so it's the story as you say of a young person growing up in a very multicultural town where increasingly his own community are those strong and growing. Safrez Mansour, who was the author and the scriptwriter for that, grew up in the town, and his is the story of uh, just in many ways like Springsteen coming to terms with who he was in his t- hometown, which is a bit of a dump. But it's the sort of place that people legend legend says try and escape from. So mm. one of the key points in there is him leaving Luton. Mm, mm. And actually, that's an unresolved piece for us. I mean, some would say the film doesn't do Luton well. Mm, But actually, it's a a town we love. I'd like to call it a a workshop for peace. Mm. It's a place where we are actively having to engage with the the themes of what it means to make peace in the community. We can't take that for granted. We've all the time got to be negotiating, working through how we live together with people who are very different. And for me as a Christian, that's precisely what I'm called to. Um, and so that's why we've set up this Centre for Peace and Reconciliation. It's, a, it's really a, the attempt by the church to enable the church in Luton mm. and beyond mm. to live comfortably in this very multicultural, postmodern post-Christian world, where other faiths are those strong and have a part, but where actually, if we, I think if we take the biblical story rightly, we're called to live together despite our difference. I can hold on to my faith as a Christian. I'm I'm passionate in my faith as a Christian, and yet do do that humbly and gently all the time. You know, as as, as Peter calls us being prepared to give account for my faith, Mm. and yet doing so gently and with reverence and honour to those who are different. So, you know, some of my best friends in this town are people of other faiths, and particularly Muslims, who Mm. I count as very dear friends, who I can share very Mm. deeply with, Mm. and work very closely with in a relationship of trust. And that's something that we're trying to help others do, because I think that's the future, Mm. it's the future of the world, it's the future Mm. of Britain. Mm. We need to learn to do that. Live with our differences.
0: Yeah, and we were going to actually the, this podcast originally was going to be a conversation with you and a colleague of yours, a, a Muslim lady uh, activist in the in the yeah. town. But unfortunately, she wasn't able to make it. And so, but this gives us the opportunity really to dig into your work, which yeah. is which is a good opportunity anyway. But um, I suppose you know one of the the far right groups, was the English Defence League, made has made the news over here. Uh, quite a bit in the last decade, probably. Is is your role at times literally been kind of standing out on the streets, kind of between people? I mean, what, almost, what, yeah, yeah. What what is that?
1: Okay, What's so example? a example. I suppose a little background there, um, going back to some of the things you mentioned earlier. We we are a, a very multicultural town. A quarter of our people in twenty eleven were Muslim. Um, we're a very poor town we're also surrounded by very wealthy Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire, mm. home counties, community territory. So, you know, you go from here to Harpen, which you know well, mm. and I know well, your average lifespan will increase by 10, 12 years. Mm. Your wealth goes up. Zoom. The color of the population there is white. Here is every color under, under, under the the sun. sun, under the sun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, We have that strong Muslim population and, yeah, amongst them, there have been a number of extremists. Mm. So when 9-11 took place, you know, there were those who shouted joyously. Mm. But they were already people who were on the margins of the the Muslim community and over the years, particularly after uh, the London bombings in 2005, they were increasingly marginalised. And they don't play any significant part in the public life of the Muslim community here. They, any space they create is their own. There's a few of them. They were on the streets. They're now not on the streets nearly as much. Um, but in response to that in 2009, there was a... The, the Really, the defining moment in Luton's story was in March on March 10th, 2009. And they... There was a homecoming parade of a local regiment that recruited from Luton, and others that coming back from Iraq, and several members of that regiment had died on that tour, including a Luton lad. So when they were doing their homecoming parade through Luton, about fourteen, twenty of these guys were on the streets with signs that sort of really just lambasted the the the, the Muslim guys, the the the, the soldiers. And it
0: is- Oh, L- L- of the soldiers. Yeah, okay. yeah,
1: ugly signs mm. condemning the rapists and, and killers and so on.
0: War criminals. Yeah.
1: And there were about 5,000 um, uh, Lutonians just welcoming them home and, and, and it got ugly. And it was very clear there was an orchestrated sort of response from a far right grouping that sort of really struck out at these guys and cornered them and the police, they would have killed them, I think, if the police hadn't eventually managed to contain the crowd. I was there watching this and for me, it was what's going on in the town and I I went home and literally got to grips with trying to understand what this was. And out of that fledgling group that opposed those Muslim extremists at the time emerged a group that later became called the English Defence League. Stephen Lennon, Tommy Robinson, uh, resident of this town, grown up in the town, uh, was their leader. And he has become a public figure now for uh, extremists, representing sort of far right voice, always in the media. Well, he was until the media sort of marginalized him, social media banned him and so on. But always there, stirring up trouble. He doesn't live in the town any longer, he lives nearby. But he occasionally comes in still stirring up trouble but he makes trouble around the world, frankly. Mm -hmm. And out of that emerged a sort of reputation for us. So over the years following that, we had quite a few demos. We lived with these guys as local people who were all the time rabble-rousing around local issues. But then there were occasions when they would bring in thousands to demonstrate. Mm -hmm. And that really unsettled the community because what those demos do, which that went, because I mean, you know, the police, I suppose, right. the you know, say freedom of speech, you know, they've got a voice, they've got a right to express their voice. Well, yes, they have. But actually, what happens is the town gets filled with that sort of poisonous atmosphere of hate. And so we've had a town where over the years, hatred has been so openly expressed on many occasions. It's unsettled us. And We've had to get in there and we I worked with the church leaders and with the commun- Muslim community, with the police and others to actually, as you say, get in between groups. And so when our big demonstrations have happened on the best, most, one point we had actually had 75, 80 Christian leaders in the town, out on the streets, just doing anything that makes for peace, standing between groups... Out there just calming fears, talking to people who were confused, holding it, creating a place of refuge for people who were upset and needed, in case anything got really bad, working with the police, just really trying to make sure that the town could return to normal afterwards. And so I, I, That's been a work I've led, really, and it's yeah. been a
0: joy to lead it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, without kind of um, overly repeating myself, I, I kind of have to say this almost in most podcasts, but... You know, we the podcast series is called Guardians of the Flame, which is about our attempt to um, amplify voices that um, uh, bring uh, beauty in the, through the message of Jesus yeah. um, and yeah. through through other faith voices. You know, finding voices of construction, of peace, of reconciliation in the midst of religious belief. Um, and obviously, you know, we're seeing, I think, around the world, a growth in what has been called populism, yeah. nativism, a, a kind of a, our country first, Britain first, America first. Um, uh, and and so you're really living in a very much, a, it feels like a ground zero kind of space with radical elements on both sides, far right, English Defence League, and in the past, you know, you've had some radical Islamic voices as well. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing Steve Chalk, who's the um, founder of the Oasis Trust in, in, uh, in London, and uh, he talked, he said something very interesting. He was talking about a government policy, I think called Prevent. I think that's what it was called. But he basically said its, it's aim is de de-radicaliza- deradicalization. And he said, he said that's, the, you know, basically that's the most foolish thing you could ever do. You can't de-radicalise a young person, you know. By definition, a young person desires to be radical you know desires to kind of make a difference do something Uh, and this kind of policy he saw just it was Um, self-defeating and they it was what should have been happening uh was a funneling of passion and energy into into something good what's your takeaway in terms of working with radical elements
1: we can we can talk about that and probably need to but let me tell you a story about the ugliness of conflict Mm. Mm. turned into beauty Mm. Uh, because i think that is symbolic for the for our whole journey here Mm. i mentioned english defense league but there are other far right groups one britain first which i think you you know Mm. they've had quite an involvement over in northern ireland because uh
0: yeah we've been graced with their presence yeah you have and
1: and paul Mm. spent a lot of time there at one point in his life paul golding one of the leaders they came here on a number of occasions, 2014, 15, 16. And I, we worked extensively to actually, because they, they claim more of a Christian voice. It's very marginal. It's perhaps a little bit more at home in your community. But it, it's, it's, it's very marginal here. But we wrote to them as church leaders and said, we don't need you when they here working for us in this town. That was when they planned to come for a demo in 2015. They did, they came. We actually met with them for three hours before the meeting, before the demo, a few days before. Myself, one of our our vicar of the church here and one of the black leaders in the town just met with them and said, please, don't come. We talked and, you know, just talked about their, their own faith and so on and there seemed to be a genuine testimony there. And, you know, they came and we lived through that and, It was in early January 2016, they came, about 30 of them, carrying two-foot crosses in sort of paramilitary uniform. You know, they've been learning their lessons from over your part Mm -hmm. of the world. And they marched through Berry Park, which is where the majority of the Muslim community is centred with their crosses. And, of course, they attracted a lot of anger... But they went over, the, the co-deputy leader, Jada Franson went over and really verbally assaulted a young Muslim woman with her children. It was ugly. They wound her up and she got cross with them. But you see that on the video. You don't see the 15 minutes that actually CCTV captured of their dialogue before the bit they captured. And we heard about this and one of my... principles is I try and get in there as soon as possible after there's been a point of conflict mm-hmm. so the next day we were in Berry Park with now about 20 of us as Christian leaders after church on Sunday with carnations with a message of peace we shared that around and we met this young woman and just sh- shared the message and shared some flowers with her as indeed with shopkeepers and all and it was so well received
0: and the message would have been...
1: Just, this does not represent us. Mm. Six months later, July 2016, a Catholic priest had been murdered by a extreme, Muslim extremist over in Rouen in France. And that Sunday, a group of 2025 Muslim leaders and others came to several of the churches in the town, the main Catholic church, to us. And I looked at that group, I welcomed them at the door, we knew they were coming. They came with flowers and a message. Mm. Mm. Cuz they wanted to say, you know, they were returning that gesture of friendship. Mm. And I looked at this group and there was this young woman, mm. Samaya, and she, I hadn't seen her until then. Mm. She looked at me and she said, "Yes, Peter, it's me." Mm. And she later mm. said to me, she stood on the platform and shared the message. You know, we had... She wasn't the key leader of that group. She came with rahana my friend, who you'd nice. hopefully meet sometime. And she said as she shared... As they shared the message, she said, I was free. I was free of the anger. I was free of the trauma. I was free of the desire for revenge. That's de-radicalisation, Johnny. Mm. And actually, it's about relationship. It's about extending love and friendship... Getting in there and meeting somebody in their trauma, in their anger, in their anger that can be stirred up so often by, mm. by extremists and the dialogue, the, ex- the message of extremists worms its way out. But Rahana came alongside her with friendship and built on the friendship we'd offered. And is now working for peace. Mm. And we've got other stories like that as well.
0: So it's it's not so much a kind of a negative de radicalization It's a, a steering the radical the yeah the the kind of the anger. Maybe a, a sometimes a, there can be a healthy anger. Yeah. anger at racism, anger at discrimination. Uh, steering that in a de- generation that builds bridges. Yeah. and relationships. our
1: story. You know, your story, my story. We will have moments of trauma. Mm. I've I've been through lots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually, the thing is. <coughs> the thing I think we, is so important in those moments is to allow God through his people, as Christians, find models, methods of calming ourselves and not allowing us our lives to be marked by that trauma and that anger and that pain, but allowing ourselves to resettle and find peace. And that can come for all sorts of ways it often will come through friendship. Mm. And at that point, you know, you're able, that's the point where, yeah, but you become a radical for peace mm. rather than a radical for anger and hatred and destruction. Mm. And at the heart of the government's policy is, it's very superficial. It doesn't take faith seriously because mm. it sees faith as the problem. And we as church leaders have said we couldn't we couldn't live with this because actually this model sees faith as a problem it see it it's it encourages faith leaders to get in there and work with young people and almost then report report them mm-hmm. we can't do allow that to happen we have to come alongside people and walk with them in their pain and their journeys mm-hmm. pastorally okay. I always say my work of de radicalisation whether it's On the far right or with Muslims is is about friendship is about sharing love and it's about reaching out to to them in that pain and walking with them in that journey
0: kind of as we we, we're talking through issues and I I suppose um, some people listening to this wouldn't necessarily have faith. Uh, probably, I would imagine, I've got no way of und- knowing what my... <laughs> who are you out there? Who, are, who, who these um, millions are that... Watch, Johnny wants to, to know. Podcast. you write writing <laughs> tell him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, leave a review on iTunes. No. Uh, um, but um, I suppose a lot of people listening to this would be from a faith background, and particularly a Christian background. Yeah. And I think what, it, in my life, I have seen is that Christians, I speak from my tradition my tribe Christians don't really know really the place of reconciliation and particularly when it comes to a growing pluralistic societies in the West uh, multicultural cities um, Christians haven't often got a theology of what it would be mean to be a reconciler and so you see a Muslim over there and you think well my first job is to convert them and of course, because of all of that they may be going through that's that can come across in a very negative way and yeah. how do you balance your kind of strong christian commitment um which is not some woolly kind of uh you know just no. kind of you know you're one of the most passionate people i know in your faith <laughs> um how do you kind of how how do you kind of balance that like and and yeah we, i guess we can go into then where does your theology of reconciliation where is it shaped by
1: How do I balance it? I I mean, I'm unapologetically Christian. And unapologetically Christian has opened doors for me amongst the leadership of the Muslim community here in Luton, with the police, in the town halls, local government, with other groups. I've never seen my faith exclude me. You know, I, I always say, I think Christians can be persecuted for two things one for their faith and one for being jerks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually too often we're persecuted because we're just not nice people. Mm -hmm. And actually, somebody said to me last year, your faith just oozes out of you, Peter. Your love just oozes out of you. And that was a huge compliment because actually I, I just, I want to be nice, but I don't want to be soft, nice, nice, nice. But actually, I think you know the fruits of the spirit are about they talk about a person who who you can engage with you can sit down and talk to about anything who creates a safe space for you and actually for me reconciliation and peacemaking is actually creating that safe space i early in my days in walking this i in 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 call to become a peace I used to use the phrase a place of grace and I think we just need to fi- define where we are by grace and niceness and kindness and the goodness of God because I find in that place of grace where where my demeanor where my attitude shaped by God's power allows me to be nice and decent and respectful and honoring of others and with that accompanied by somehow something of God's grace and goodness coming in into that space, you can have all manner of conversations around difference, around sexuality, around faith, around all the things that divide you as community. And so, basically, my role in this town is to create places of grace, mm. safe spaces where people can talk about anything, really. Mm. And that's why when you know, if you have a conversation sometime with myself and Rahana. Mm. You will, I hope, find a space where we can talk about anything, Mm. and we do, Mm. and it's important for the peace of our town that we can talk about anything. Mm. 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 And I'm just trying to multiply
0: that, really. Wow! And what would be some of your key kind of texts in Scripture where you kind of have felt this? This is what it says here. You know, this is the space of grace
1: is right there. You know. I suppose really one of the most important for me is the the words of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, children of God. I was walking around during a time of worship once, as I do, I I never sit still, I always pace. Mm -hmm. And I found myself looking, I'd been reflecting on that scripture Mm -hmm. in Matthew 5. And then I found myself looking at kids and their parents and their grandparents and thinking oh the family image and then suddenly it hit me when i'm a peacemaker people see the image of god in me and i'm a child i've seen as a child of god now different people and i think even on your own Mm -hmm. podcast different people have talked about the scripture and had different ways of seeing it and they're all legitimate but for me it's when people see the image of god Mm -hmm. and i think the I mean, you know the, 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 sto- the story. You were involved yourself in the Reconciliation Walk, where as a church, um, large numbers of Christians from the Anglo-Saxon world, really, and the European world, yeah. went to the Holy Land and across the roots of the Crusades and shared a message of reconciliation and apology for the Crusades. <clears throat> I always remember right at the end of that, we were over in Gaza, mm. sitting down with a leader of a radical Islamic group, that we'd been asked if we would meet with. And these angry men who carried etched in their faces generations of anger, Mm. we shared that message and the leader looked at me and said, truly, you're a son of God. Mm. And then I looked mystified and he said it again. And he said, The trouble with you Christians is you don't believe the words of Jesus, do you? <laughs> Didn't Jesus say, Blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called sons of God? He saw the image of God in us. As you shared. Because we were doing a God thing yeah. of making peace. Yeah,
0: that was the 900th anniversary of the, That's right. of the First Crusade. That was
1: 1999.
0: And. Um, yeah, and the, and the message was simply, we're sorry, basically. Yeah,
1: you know? and I've experienced a number of occasions like that where my humility mm. and my creating, actively creating that space of grace allowed... You know, we had an hour of dialogue after that, and they mm. said all sorts of stuff that mm. I could have become very defensive about, mm. but we didn't mm-hmm. because we'd humbled ourselves. We couldn't fight back. Mm. Oh, but that place, it wasn't painful because that place was, it was like it was surrounded by cotton wool. Mm. You know, all the anger and the pain was absorbed by God's grace. Mm. And I, I think for me, I, that was a defining moment in my call to be a peacemaker. Mm. Because I, I went away from that time and saying, what if I could build on that encounter now, in that situation, I wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared. We didn't have the tools and the relationships to do that. But I sought to create safe spaces, places of grace here, where we can continually work and build.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so uh, you know,
0: you're you kind of do this full time, I suppose. A lot of people listening might have day jobs and other ways, you know? Do you have any kind of experience or stories of where you've been able to see people, kind of normal people take steps in creating spaces of grace, you know? Uh, What would it look like for someone to do that?
1: Well, actually, I'll tell you a story of me in, you know, when I was 23, Mm. when I was just a young guy, deputy manager of a hostel for overseas students, in South London, just uh, when I say deputy manager, we were getting a house for free, mm-hmm. a, a flat for free, living there. And I had to do duty a couple of days a week. Next door neighbour was a lovely guy. Jordanian, he told me, he was actually Palestinian. And we, his day when he had didn't have to go into college until... Midday was the date. One of the days I served, so we'd have to have coffee and play pool together. And I, I was waxing eloquent, getting excited about Israel at the time. And at one point, and conversation, not really aware of what that this was your, doing to him. That was your theological My, event at the time. Yes, so at that point, yeah. A,
0: a part, end times, yeah, a kind of, uh, little yeah, bit, not yeah. too
1: much the end times, but yeah, Israel, still yeah. strong in Israel. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, let me tell you a story. He began to tell me about what it was like to grow up in the refugee camps of Gaza. Mm. I thought of him all those years later, Mm. having father who died of this and mother who was sick with this and siblings who died of that and so on and friends who died of this and and all the pain. And a few, I just, it just challenged everything I knew and thought. I didn't have any answers. And I never really thought much about it, but a couple of weeks later, he came and knocked on the door and I was on duty and said, I'm leaving. And he paid, he was paid up, he paid a month's rent head and he left. And I met his friends as he was leaving. it was three sure, or four weeks after that The knock on the door. A couple of guys stood there. And they were plainclothes special branch police officers. <laughs> showed me their ID said, Do you know, this guy showed me a picture. And I said, Oh, that's Marwan Marwan Albana." banna Marwan had gone and he'd been one of the four who attempted the assassination of the Israeli ambassador in 1982 wow. in London. Now, that was the cause of the Lebanon War. It was the straw that broke the camel's back because the day or two after, Israel went into southern Lebanon. Mm. And so it sort of unsettled everything, and so it went on from there. And I know you've got yeah. lots of experience of Lebanon. Mm. And actually, I often think back to myself, and I really realised this after going to Gaza, and particularly then after 9-11, what if I, as a 23-year-old, near just-finished student, could have met his words of pain with a place of grace? Just allowing him to talk, to meet my humility as a Christian. Could he have been de-radicalised at that point? Now, I wasn't a Christian leader, full-time working in reconciliation. Mm. I was... Peter, a 23-year-old. And it's, it was, again, I, it was one of those looking back. It was a what-if moment. Mm. So if
0: we could all kind of maybe see in our own lives these moments uh, where we can have a vocation to create spaces of yeah. grace.
1: And how many times, I thought to myself after that, how many times have I sat on planes, sat in restaurants? How many times could I have reached out just to people I didn't even know mm-hmm. and created that sort of space? Actually, that story, it was in 1996. The Israelis shelled a UN command post in southern Lebanon. 100 people killed. On that day, a young Egyptian wrote down that he would give his life to take the Zionists, oppressors, and their American allies. It was like a living will. He went on to lead the gang that led nine eleven. Wow. So I think you know. What if I, twenty three year old, could have done something that could have helped Marwan? Israel, the story of Lebanon, would might well have been different. Nine eleven could have been different. Um, you know, that's an ordinary person. Yeah, and yeah. it's a what if. Yeah, and I don't say I'm this big guy doing all this big stuff yeah actually that's an ordinary person Mm. and how many of people listening to this podcast could do something and you never know who it would be
0: Mm. um yeah that that's uh it's you're touching on something there about maybe sometimes the roots of of radicalization which is often some kind of trauma and I know that's been a passion of your own life is kind of looking at dealing with helping people in, with trauma and realising that yeah. is often part of, the, part of our solution, is not just kind of dealing with symptoms out there, but looking yeah. deeper.
1: Yeah, trauma. I think we're really only just beginning to understand trauma and PTSD, post-traumatic stress, mm. and how you manage PTSD and so on. I mean, I've been just recently doing a lot of work with victims, survivors of sexual abuse in the church, and I, I mean, just yesterday, I was with some survivors. And the trauma and the impact of that trauma from that story is just so deep in their lives. But it's the same tra- same sort of thing, trauma that comes from those who've experienced all sorts of stuff. And that's the route on which ideology can grab you. And ideology and trauma wrapped up together give you, empower your story and make you a very angry person who can do all sorts of stuff. But that when that trauma is reached out to and healing it it can be settled and it can but people you know I I remember sitting down and I've sat down on a number of occasions I mean my style is you know very early on in our engagement with the far right as it broke out here in Luton was to try and understand them and hear their stories actually hear their trauma and I, I I sat down on one occasion talking to Stephen Lennon the former founder of the EDL and Heard his stories. You know, he tells his stories on video, in his book and all sorts of places. Some of them true, but it's the spin he puts around them. And they're the stories of somebody growing up in a multicultural town and the pain of that. And our parishioners here and the people who went out on the early EDL demos here. You know, I, I just began, as I began to try and understand that movement, I would follow them on Facebook. Not follow them on Facebook, I would look mm. at the public events on Facebook, look at the dialogue. And I was amazed how many people I knew who were friend, who I saw there who were friends of friends of mine, as Facebook tells you that. Mm. And I thought, who are these people? Who? How are they my friends? That was quite scary. Mm. Mm. But actually they were people who were friends of a church leader in another church. Or they mm-hmm. were... Children of people in another church who I knew. Mm -hmm. And actually, I got the opportunity to sit down with them and understand them and talk to them. Mm -hmm. Stephen Lennon's uncle, Darren, was somebody who I met first when he shouted me down and intimidated me out of a meeting. He was one of the founders of the English Defence League. But he gradually began to engage with me, and he's now totally changed. He's working against extremism. Wow. Because we reached out and I didn't respond to the to the emails, anonymous emails of hate. And I reached out to him on the street and then I sat down and had a cup of tea with him. And that grew and grew and grew. And then he took a Muslim friend of mine to a football match at Luton Town. And that was, that was a big statement for him. He's not a person of faith. Darren has no real faith. He... He for him football's his Luton Town is his his thing. And taking Muslim there was so much a healing piece in his story.
0: Yeah. And so for you, I think what you're saying is that you see that a story like that is beautifully Christian. That's beautifully what Jesus yeah, would do. Ordinary, ordinary. But, but know, he's not yeah. he's not
1: He's not really responding yeah. from a place of faith; he's just yeah. responding
0: from goodness. But but a lot of that, the ground has human been, being has been the ground has been prepared by yeah. people like yourself yeah. who are yeah, yeah, you're yeah, going. Yeah. Actually, this is what our calling is to yeah. do: is to create a space for grace, a space for change. Uh, obviously, theologically, you know, you and I both know from our background. Many young Christians speak about our own our own group. Uh, we are often very uh, interested in just purchasing fire insurance, you know, like it's the afterlife. It's, it's you know, how do yeah. we make sure we go to heaven when we die? Um, and there doesn't seem to be much relevance to this earth, you know, let your kingdom come on earth. You know, it's all about, you know, may I get to eternal bliss now. Um, so, uh, you know, y- what you're doing is, is you're, actually creating space here on earth, which I think is really important. Now, we, you talked about the stained glass window, and which kind of references the Magnificat, you know, and you, I think it was you mentioned um, the Magnificat. Was was it banned? Under, in it was a, banned in some of the nations
1: of Central America. Uh,
0: yeah, because it was seen as – So radical. Mary said, you bring down the lofty, the high, yeah. the powerful. Yeah. Um, and uh, we um, – Obviously, without getting, I mean, I don't mind getting a bit political, but like, obviously we live in an age where, for instance, in North America, in America, there's been uh, 81% of those who of evangelicals that voted, voted for Trump. And, you know, without kind of saying that's good or bad, uh, very obviously, a lot of what was behind that was the sense that we need to get a guy who's gonna be, have our side in the White House. We need to be powerful almost inversely of of mary's song which was about weakness um and of course you know and now that's spreading you've got uh bolsonaro in brazil who's well known you know he's been embraced by the evangelical church and pentecostals in brazil as their kind of darling and and yet it seems quite questionable and we have a history of that of kind of allying ourselves to powerful leaders because we think that somehow is going to do good, you know, what do you have to say about that kind of environment where people of faith are, instead of guarding a fame of humility and grace and enemy love, we are promoting our, you know, interests, we see sometimes a victim mentality, yep. everyone's out to get us, persecution complex. Yep, yep, um,
1: yep. Hey, look around you, I, <laughs> I, we see here the product 900 years of the power of the church in this land. I work, you know, this is the parish church Luton, it was the church in Luton, grave over there, tablet and t- tells of how the, the church member there had a spat with a Baptist um, in, the, in the town back in the 1700s. You know, we celebrated that sort of stuff. We were the powerful church, we controlled the population, we did power... White Anglo-Saxon male privilege was us. I work out of this place, but actually, you know, we know that the Church of England here in this in this nation is not does can't be defined by that any longer. Yeah, we've got all of that, but actually, and we are still part of the establishment. But and I I sit in the in the chamber of the the governance body of the Church of England as a member of the Church of England General Synod. And I laugh at all the legislative stuff that we do and the way we have to do it in order to be the established church. But actually, it's a part of our legacy. But for so many out there, it means nothing. You know, our bishops, some of them sit in the House of Lords. They do incredible stuff. I mean, my own Bishop Alan has done some incredible work on opposing the gambling industry. He's a consistent voice for justice and righteousness in in the Chamber of the House of Lords. Yet others would question why why these bishops in the Lords. They're actually probably the most effective opposition at the moment, frankly, and voice for justice. Yet, yes, why are they there? They're there because of history. They're there because of power. I know all about power, but when I go out from here... Does that power mean anything in the town? We are the, the traditional civic church of Luton. We used to have a service for the mayor every year, etc., etc., etc. You know, what does that look like now in this post-Christian world? What's it look like in this multicultural town where the Church of England means nothing to so many? Actually, what it means is that we as Christians, we as the Church of England, and I think we as Christians more generally, to answer your question, can be there for the oppressed, can be there for the powerless, can be there for those who suffer, can be there for the poor, can be there for the prisoners, can be there for the hungry, can be there for those who are refugees, can be there for those who are powerless. It means giving of ourselves, giving of our legacy, prophetically and saying, you matter, because you are a child of God, not because you're like me, a Christian, but you're a child of God, made by God in his image, and you are beautiful, and you mean something, and you're valuable. That's the basis on which I work and which we carry. That's the basis on which you are trying to reimagine what it means to be civic church, reimagine what it means to be the powerful church, the establishment church here in Luton, Um, And I think I would say that to to all those who who stand with Mr. Trump, Bolsonaro or whoever. Actually, okay, so they may be trying to cosy up to you. I'm not going to say that's right or wrong. I'm not going to challenge their faith. That's up to them and God. But what I will do is say, are you abandoning your root calling, which is to stand... For all, and to stand with the powerless, and to seek justice and righteousness in our world, and seek peace, or are you just going to seek your own privilege? Yeah. Um, the um,
0: I maybe we'll bring this to a, a close with maybe just the last couple of questions. Um, and I suppose I I, th- I thought I wasn't going to do it, and then I, I thought actually, well, you know, we we should get into political stuff in a sense. We're not necessarily. It roll around in the dirt but of, of politics. But there are issues that really are important to the world. Yeah. And of course, in this part of the world, Brexit has dominated the news for the last four years in a way that I none of us ever would have imagined. Obviously for us in Northern Ireland, um, oh, uh, it's, it's had massive consequences and we, yeah. there's still a great deal of insecurity about what it's yep. going to mean. Um, but of course, it, it appears like it has kind of happened. You know, there's this kind of year of transition Um, and I could talk endlessly about my frustration with it and sadness and grief and hope that it will change. But at the same time, there is a clarifying moment and that it has happened. And I suppose you're not in Northern Ireland, you're here in in England, uh, south of England. What what do you think, um, how do you respond in a post-Brexit world now or post-Brexit England? You know, uh, know, for, for the last few years, I know a lot of my energy has been kind of bemoaning it and protesting it and you know but we there's not much point in that in a sense anymore I mean there's a certain point we you don't need to give up but we have to kind of somehow begin to create something out of the out of the ashes in some ways not to be overly dramatic and not everyone obviously it's a polarizing issue and not everyone's going to agree with me watching this but you know how do we be a creative force uh, in the midst of something that we find deeply <coughs> Um, displeasurable and pain- yeah. painful.
1: To be honest, we go on and do what we always do. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm the same person doing the, so the same message as I had before, creating a place where people can talk about these issues. And yes, if I draw attention to the issues that come because of Brexit now, it's not because I I oppose Brexit. I did. But it's because... I'm drawing attention to the fact that a consequent of Brexit is this. That this person has lost their passport, that this person has lost a job, or whatever it might be, and we're not really there yet, but I anticipate we will be, and in Northern Ireland a lot more, and we need to draw attention to those things. And create spaces to talk about it actually if you say it, it's it's not the issue any longer we 're living in that world, but we're still faced by the consequences. What does deeply challenge me is the way that lies and untruths and manipulation were used in the political campaigning and I've been were done so um, well by both sides but I, I think particularly the the leave side the use of of social media to multiply untruthful news stories.
0: Like the one of the the woman who was kind of confronted by the uh, the, the British, Britain first lady, you know, that kind of, a, a confrontation where a Muslim oh. woman was victimized, was treated no, badly. That, that
1: video yeah. of, of her abuse, yeah. well, before it was taken down, went out 50 million times on, one, on just YouTube. Yeah. It was many, many more than that. And I saw Americans sharing yeah. sharing that. Our video. own video of us doing flowers got 128,000, which was pretty yeah. good going, yeah. but nowhere near. Yeah. But actually, I've seen that, place, that story come, come up. Yeah. Of her, of the young Muslim woman shouting back at the mm. at the leader of, the, of Britain First carrying her cross. I've seen that. I've seen the picture of Stacey Dooley be, being confronted by Andrew and Chowdhury, the radical Muslim leader here in Luton. I get sent it by friends, mainly from America, many times every year, saying, oh, "You're living in Luton. What's this about?" Yeah, and yeah. actually, I said, "I was there. This is what happened on that day." This is why Stacey was abused by Anjum. Anjum doesn't live in Luton. Anjum has a few followers in Luton, etc. Let's hear the truth around these stories. We've got to unpack those lies, but recognise the reality is the political thing has been done. Reach out to Europe. Reach out to those who are Britons in Europe. Reach out to Europeans who are married here. There's so many things we've got to do to keep this a society where... Where actually God's standards of justice and peace are continue to to be upheld or at least spoken out by some and finally, I mean, we've been touching
0: on this for really our whole interview, but um, I heard i remember um sociologist from the states refer to the phenomenon of demographic anxiety um and the sense that and i funny, I heard. I heard a, a general in the United States Army l- last week use exactly the same phrase. Um, the phrase was, there's a sense in which um, in America, white people have been standing in line for their turn. Yeah. Um, and suddenly a bunch of immigrants have cut in in front of them, or a bunch of people of color, of black people, whatever, you know. And there's a sense of, of injustice that it was our turn and, uh, and and I think a black president f- fueled that in, in America, this sense of, hey, the black president, and now all these immigrants are coming in, and it's and then there's this anxiety of living in a town. And, and this uh, general I was talking to last week, uh, very pleasant guy, but basically said the same thing. Um, he didn't know anything about my politics. He just goes, but, you know, this country's hard, Johnny, because, you know, my mom was an immigrant here, and we were standing in line, and then these... People have cut. He used exactly the same phrase I'd heard a sociologist use two years earlier. Um, so, in a lot of Western countries, there's demographic anxiety. This, oh, oh they huge. Look, they look different. It's what a does part that of the, mean? It's part of the
1: rhetoric of the far right. Yeah, it's one of their key narratives.
0: Yeah. So, what? How do we? What do we do to, to say it's okay? They're not coming to steal your jobs. I mean, I mean, obviously that's a political argument, but. Is there something we can start to do that's constructive well
1: i mean i, I do occasionally point people back to history while well, they're here because we went there yeah. um you know yeah. we as Britain did lots of stuff in on the Indian subcontinent for many years before they came here, and it was destructive of many millions of lives. That is a reality that's a fact it's probably not a very helpful one to draw attention to um But the fact is that they were here by our invitation. They're here doing jobs because we invited them to come do jobs post-war when the economy was down and we needed to build, build, build. That's why we have people from all of the nations of the Commonwealth here. That's why the Irish are here in large numbers in Luton. Bless them. You know, it's why everybody's here, because there were jobs and we needed people to do the work. And now we've got lots of Eastern Europeans and and we still need people to do the work. Because, you know, so actually... Yes, there's a lot of lot of issues and there is anxiety and there are real stories of, of injustice towards white people, but there are huge stories of injustice towards people of other colour and people of other ethnic background. And actually, my place as a peacemaker is to try and play, make a place where actually we, and as church, I come back to that's what we're called to be, a place in the centre of Luton where actually people with their anxieties can come... With their traumas, all those negative stories can come and find peace. And we're actually, if you come into the church, you will see at at our entrance door, live at peace with all. Etched in, in the glass, glass doors at the entrance. We as a church celebrate together at the Eucharist, at the Holy Communion, where we come as one before the table of the Lord. We make peace with God through Jesus, and we find peace with one another. We share the peace as part of our service. We, we share the peace together. An opportunity to even deal with some of the things that could be wrong in, a, in our relationships. I will often challenge myself, is there anybody here in the church I need to sit, commit to during this time of making peace, to sit down and arrange a coffee with them later in the week and just put right something? So we come together as the people of God from all the tribes of Luton. We are a very multicultural church. And we live together in peace as a Christian community. When you go out from here, the other glass door says live at peace with all. Same challenge. So it's commissioning us to go out and live as people of peace in this town. Now, I didn't make the decision to put that door in. It was put in about two years before we came and moved here. But for me, it said, that's what this place is. It's the place in this community that enables people to come in, talk their stories, come to a place of understanding, come to a place of healing, come to a place of real unity together, and then to walk out as people of light, people living that peace, out in the town so when i go out i go out as a peacemaker taking that peace to everybody in this town
0: brilliant well peter thanks so much for your time uh i think you know the 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 mayor here i think and you've received his the mayor has given you an award of outstanding citizen you've received other awards that's right and i think in our conversation i can see you know i can see why and i hope people watching people listening um, can see why uh, thanks for the work that you're doing I think you're a, a, a beautiful model of what it can look like to be a citizen take citizenship seriously um, uh, on earth but also in that sense of a citizen of heaven you know uh, where an ultimate allegiance is to is to one who calls us to be at peace with all Absolutely. you know yeah. and uh, so thanks um, for your work and your friendship over many years and you uh, um, yeah. So, and thanks for inviting us to Luton. And uh, thank you, Johnny. It's great uh, to be with yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Good to have you again. Okay.